Hello and welcome to Science Off Camera. I'm Dr. Matthew Kozedun from Teledyne Photometrics, part of the Teledyne Imaging Group. In this podcast, I will be speaking with imaging specialists and industry leaders in scientific imaging from around the world about what they do, the advances they have made, and the cool imaging setups they have in their labs. Before we get started, if you're interested in learning more about scientific cameras and comparing technologies, we're currently holding live interactive remote learning sessions at our demo centers around the globe. Book a personalized session with one of our application specialists today on our website, photometrics.com. We also have an exciting new product launching soon, the Kinetics SCMOS, which delivers a frame rate and field of view unmatched by any other SCMOS camera. Book an online demonstration to see how it compares to current camera technologies. In this episode of Science Off Camera, I'm talking with Dr. Andrea Stout, director of the CDB Microscopy Corps at the University of Pennsylvania, about their research, their life in science, and how they're adapting to change in their world. I guess the best place to start with would be um, what you know. What's your role at the moment, and what was your path to get there? Were you always interested in imaging? Um, sure. Yeah. So my role at the moment, I'm director of. It's called the CDB Microscopy Corps. CDB stands for Cell and Developmental Biology, which is our home department. Um, at, at UPenn, the cores tend to be linked to a specific department in the School of Medicine. So mine is Cell and Developmental Biology. And I'm responsible for training uh, people. We have about 15 Actually, I can never remember, uh, but I'll have to look at the website, but 13 or 15, I can't remember, uh, microscopes. Um, so I do training on those because most of our users use them independently. Um, consult, I consult with them, you know, designing their experiments. Um, they come to me wanting to know how to prepare their samples to achieve their goals. So I do my best to recommend, um, you know, protocols and things like that. Uh, we do, let's see, I don't do a lot of uh, repairs. Um, I do some, but mostly, most of our microscopes are under contract. So things like Leica, Zeiss, um, you know, they'll come in and take, you know, do the heavy maintenance. But uh, me and my one other staff person, um, we do clean them, we take care of them, um, make sure everything's running properly, troubleshoot software. And for about, I would say, 10% of our users, uh, we actually acquire the images for them um, because they don't either have the time to get trained or maybe imaging is just a small component of their project. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, it's using a confocal. A lot of people think, oh, it's just, you know, you throw your sample on and <laughs> out comes a beautiful image. But that's not how it works, as you know. Um, a lot going, goes into producing useful, uh, good quality data. Um, and so people sometimes just don't have the time to learn how to do that themselves. So we do do that for people. Um, do you have a lot of people being very careless with the oil? Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say our users are pretty good compared. To, you know, you see some horror stories out there. Um, most of our problems come from people who don't clean oil off their samples before going to a short working distance dry lens or something like that. Uh, um, it's not dry for we, long. 
it's not dry for long. And you know, the thing is, it's like, oftentimes you can't tell right away that something's messed up, you know, cause the lens, you know, if you just kind of casually look at it, it might be okay. But, um, you know, once you take it off and look at it under a, a dissecting scope, you could tell it's been messed up. Um, but we don't actually, we, that's one thing we do with our users. I'm pretty proud of. We, we really do take the time to, um, train them properly from the get-go, you know, and we watch them um, put their samples on. Uh, if we see something, you know, if we see that they're, they have bad habits, we try to correct those early rather than mm. later. Um, Teaching them how so. to fish, really. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and most, uh, you know, most of our users are very considerate, very careful. If, you know, on, in some sense, some of them err on the side of too much caution. You know, they're, they're afraid to do anything. Um, you know, they'll just kind of sit there paralyzed until you come and help them, which I don't want, you know, I don't want them to be that afraid, but uh, at least it's good for the, the instruments. Um, so, so that's my current job. Um, and I do also a lot of teaching. Um, you know, part of our training is a lecture component that I do, well, I, I did. So yeah, if you wanted to use our confocals, I required you to do a 90 minute lecture on basic microscopy. Um, you know, what's the difference between a confocal and a wide field? Uh, how does a microscope work? You know, that sort of thing. Um, and I teach a course each fall on quantitative image analysis too. Okay, did you enjoy your teaching? I, I do like my teaching. Um, before I came to Penn, I was a professor of physics uh, at Swarthmore College, which is a smaller liberal arts college in the area. Hmm. And I really, I really liked the teaching aspect of it. Okay, how did you, how did you get into this uh, kind of area? Uh, well, it's sort of convoluted. <laughs> um, so, I mean, my PhD is in biophysics. Um, hmm. So I did my PhD with Dan Axelrod, who came up with uh, total internal reflection fluorescence microscopy, uh, developed many of the methods that are used in commercial systems. So my, my PhD was really, uh, a lot of it was in development of microscope technology. Uh, I was really interested in that aspect of it. Um, and then my postdoc was Kind of continued in that same vein. I did. Uh, I developed some optical tweezers techniques to measure um, single molecule forces. But I always loved teaching. I came from a liberal arts college. Uh, my undergrad was at a small college, and so I wanted to go back and um, and do that again. So that's where I went after my postdoc. And um, you know, long story short, I, I love the teaching, but the research research part of that was just not, it wasn't interesting to me. I, I just couldn't find a research area that, that really captured my attention. Um, I was really more in love with the technology than any particular uh, area of research or research problem. It's quite and a commitment to finding your research area, your niche. It is, you, and you have to care about it. You know, and what I found was that I was interested in the technology I found it kind of intellectually interesting, but I didn't actually care. <laughs> I didn't care what the answers were one way or the other, you know, um, and that's not good. So, um, so I, I left academia for a while and then I just, you know, had to do something. So I got a job as a research scientist at a lab in Penn because they just needed, you know, needed a person with my skills. And 
I did some research in their lab and the whole core thing, it, it was funny. It just kind of sort of fell into my lap. <laughs> um, our department uh, had a couple confocals that people would use and they needed somebody to help train, you know, a small group of people. And my department chair asked me to do that. And it just kind of grew into a core that serves the whole community. It's just, you know, it's just one of those things. Um, Cause there wasn't really a good microscopy core at the time. So, so do um, you accommodate for a very wide range of applications? Yeah, we do. We have, um, so we have, you know, our bread and butter, I would say, are our, our five confocals, which do, you know, your standard tissue imaging, live imaging, um, you know, fixed cells. Uh, we have a lot of people doing organoids, um, you know, standard confocal samples. We have a few super resolution systems, which I'm trying to get more people uh, interested in, but that's a, a, a more of a niche area. Mm. And I think sometimes it's harder to get people interested, especially to do something like storm, which is difficult. It's quite involved. Um, it's quite involved. Yeah. You need the right type of sample. Um, but we have a light sheet. So we do bigger things, clear tissue. Uh, and we also actually in our core, we have a scanning electron microscope. So kind of took that over. Um, I have another person who does all of that for, for people. Um, okay. So we have, do yeah, you have a, wide range. do you have a favorite among your 12, 13 microscopes? <laughs> oh, I'm partial to uh, wide field microscopes. I feel like they okay. don't get, um, you know, everybody thinks, oh, confocal, confocal, perfect tool, whatever. It's not always the perfect tool. And one thing I try to teach people is that a good camera based wide field microscope with proper filters and objectives can be the best tool for the job often. Mm. So some people do yeah. go to confocal as the first option really and sort of just look straight over wide field. Yeah, a lot of people, I don't know if it's just because their their boss tells them just to go straight to confocal or they're under the impression that because it's a more sophisticated system it will give them better images, they just want to go straight to confocal. But um, really, you know, if it's not the best tool sometimes for the job, and especially if you don't even know whether your staining worked or not. So. Yeah, it, it comes down <laughs> to the sample prep where the confocal will simply let you have a better look at the giant red cloud that is your sample. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the things I try to teach people both, you know, in the in the lecture beforehand, because, you know, people will attend that and they'll say, oh, my gosh, I, I had no idea, you know, about any of this stuff. So, you know, I think generally it's been a good part of our training mm. um yeah but but you still get folks who whose bosses often often it's the the pi for the lab just will insist on confocal uh, for whatever reason and that's fine i mean i don't i'm not going to say no but it's just it, it's sort of a shame in a way you must see some incredible pictures then if you've got access to all these high you know high class equipment yeah, yeah. Um, people, yeah, there, there's some users who just bring these beautifully prepared samples. And that's just, that's one of the more rewarding parts of the job, because we don't, we don't prepare samples for people. Um, so everyone has to bring, you know, samples that they've either stained themselves or had a core do. Um, and we see a lot of bad ones, but we see some really gorgeous and the people who know what they're doing. I mean, I just, I just love talking to them and learning from them. 
Um, so yeah, beautiful things. Um, you know, especially uh, clear tissue is, is becoming more and more popular. So these bigger samples that um, when you can get the staining to work well, it's, it's really, really cool. Yeah, some of these entire like clarity cleared mouse brains where it's just, it's just a yeah. beautiful structure. Yeah, the, yeah, the clarity cleared brains. Um, I've been doing a lot of, before the shutdown, I was actually doing a lot of imaging of ants. Okay. Um, there's a lab at Penn, uh, an epigenetics lab that studies carpenter and leaf cutter ants. Um, really? Yeah, because, uh, well, I'm not, I'm not an expert, obviously, but uh, they, the, the different cast of these ants, they're all genetically identical, but they are extremely different in size and behavior. And so this lab studies the epigenetic uh, modifications that are responsible for that. Oh, okay. Um, so the workers yeah. are genetically identical to the the drones and the queen and so on. Exactly. Yeah. So they've got these. Uh, they've got a colony of. They have two colonies, I think. Um, but one of Florida carpenter ants, and then another of these leaf cutter ants that come from the tropics. And you know, there's these tiny little ones, and then there's these enormous, like, scary looking ones with these huge jaws. And they've been trying to um, clear them and stain them and then image them on our light sheet. Um, and I've, I've got an Instagram account actually where I post some of these things and also a Twitter account. Um, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun working with those. This, it must pair up quite nicely to Instagram because you can sort of put out a really nice, yes. brightly, you know, <laughs> lots of multi-stained fluorescent samples. Yeah, yeah. I, I, my Instagram is, it's not a huge thing, but it's, um, yeah, I put up some of the prettier samples that I get. Um, and I also, you know, I, I do a lot of gardening, so I put up a lot of flower pictures too. Oh, nice. Have you, <laughs> yeah. have you found a lot more time for gardening since the lockdown? Yeah, yeah. It's, I guess it came at a good time of the year, you know, in terms of gardening. So, um, yeah, I've been spending a lot of time outside, uh, which is nice. It's good to have that. What do you try and do with your garden? Because I've I've still not moved into a house where I have access to a garden, so I have nothing but plans for when I get one. <laughs> well, our area, like, at least my area, um, the soil isn't great. I tried to do vegetables for a while, but mm. there just wasn't enough sun and too many pests. So I gave up on that. And now the whole front yard is just all native perennials. So um, a lot of native North American um wildflowers, uh, shrubs, things like that. So it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. It must be quite satisfying to put in the time and you, it's very visually pleasing. It is. Yeah. And just to see it, you know, over the course of the spring, um, you know, see everything come out. It's all, you know, I, it's like, they're your friends, you know, they've been dormant all winter and then you see them coming out <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> I'm such a nerd when it comes to my garden. I love it, but <laughs> no, it's, um, it's fantastic. I, yeah. I, uh, it's always like this with the daffodils here around Easter, where you sort of, yeah. when there was grass, now you have hundreds of nice big yellow flowers. Oh, I know. They're so happy. I love those. And then, um, yeah, then they go away and some, somebody else comes out, the azaleas, mm. the red rhododendrons. Um, yeah. We have a lot of uh, woodland flocks right now that are very pretty. We have, uh, we look out over an allotment. And it's been very interesting over the last month to see a lot more time being put into the allotment and these <laughs> these just plots growing into these beautiful, you know, organized spaces. Yeah, I just I think I just learned what an allotment is. I didn't know that term. Um, but is, is it sort of like your uh, 
like you get a community garden kind of plot is that what it is yeah exactly it's just a big area that's split up into square plots and you can purchase okay. a plot and then do whatever you want with it grow raspberries oh. flowers put a shed on it cool yeah and and you're allowed to do that during the whole shutdown i think you're allowed to do it but not for a very long time and not in large groups okay yeah um yeah have you found that you're missing the core and your usual job I, yeah i do i i miss you know i miss funny things like i miss the commute i commuted via train um every day before this and i i really i miss that um i miss just seeing all the same people you know in the building uh working on the microscopes of course um I, i'm still helping people with when i can you know people have a lot of old data they're trying to get something out of at this time so i'm getting emails from people who need help with image analysis and um, but it's not the same as you know working on the microscope or teaching in person so i don't know what it's going to be like when we go back do you think much will change when we go back i think so i think um especially a core like a microscope core where this you have shared equipment people touching all kinds of stuff, you know, one person right after the next. Uh, we have to, I'm being asked to actually write up a, a protocol, you know, basically a plan for starting up when we are allowed to reopen. Um, and there's, you know, it's not gonna just go back to the way it was. We're gonna have to limit people, um, clean it a lot more, uh, you know, require all personal protective gear, that sort of thing. Mm. So yeah, it's not going to be fun, but it'll be better than staying home. <laughs> Have you been able to get out much for exercise and things like that? Yeah, uh, I live outside the city, so I um, have pretty decent areas where I can go running. I, I've been running for like 30 something years. So oh, I, I, I do that a few times a week. Uh, and of course, walking the dog, um, you know, that takes time. But um, yeah, it's nice that we're not so dense out here. I feel bad for the people in the city of Philadelphia because if you want to go for a run there, all the popular parks and things, they're either they're closed or the paths are very crowded and you're supposed to wear a mask even when you're exercising. No, it's, uh, it's nice to see the empty pathways. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's, you know, people are pretty good about staying far away. And if they, you know, if you see somebody, often they'll move to the other side of the street. Um, yeah. Yeah. Normally I would think it was a little strange if someone sees me and then crosses the road over to the other side. But now I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. It, um, it's, it's funny because like food shopping has just become, it, you know, I used to enjoy it. I like to cook, but. So I like to shop for food, but now it's just this ordeal. Like I, I dread it, you know, which is kind of sad. Yeah. Um, I usually try and bake every weekend and it's just become a real oh, wow. effort to get to the shop. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's been a really interesting uh, transition. You know, I've often thought about industry because like you, you know, I don't, the research part wasn't all that inspiring to me. Um, I didn't really like the writing either, but, um, but I like messing with the technology, you know, and understanding and explaining the technology to people. So often I've, at various points, I've thought, oh, maybe I should go work for Leica or work for Zeiss. Um, but one of the things that's always 
sort of prevented me from doing that is the thought of having to travel so much. I I quite like traveling and going to new places and seeing new stuff. Yeah. It's good to find a company that has a focus on education though, because I really enjoy teaching and outreach and that's yeah. quite compelling. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been impressed with what you guys have been putting through just with the, the webinars that you or did and um, like the one that we hosted, a, I guess it was a few weeks ago. Mm. Um, and then just, you know, the, the websites put a lot of thought into educational websites, yeah. which is nice. I think at least my experience in my PhD was that you have a quite complex microscope and you learn what all the buttons and knobs do. And then there's just this random box in the corner and then the images <laughs> yeah. come out of it and you're happy with the images or you're not and you don't understand yeah. anything about the process i know i know actually when i teach my course in the fall like i do a whole lecture on um you know cameras and detectors and i think it's the person who's the core co-organizer of the course with me she thinks i go overboard on that stuff but i find it very interesting and important to understand you know because you got to know where these numbers come from you know definitely so, it's very interesting um, for me. Now I know quite a lot and I wish I could go back to my PhD and change a few of the, <laughs> you know, a few of the dials. Like this should have been like this. Right. Your signal to noise. It was so bad. It was so bad. <laughs> and I thought if I turned up the gain over one that I would be cheating. So I definitely shouldn't do that. Right. <laughs> but no, I probably should have. Uh, oh, well, you know, the world went on, right? Exactly. <laughs> we all survived. It all works out in the end. It works out, yeah. Well, it's been really nice talking to you. <laughs> you too, yeah, it's been nice. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Andrea Stout. If you like this podcast, please follow Photometrics on social media for more episodes and check out photometrics.com for the latest in scientific camera technology for life sciences, such as the Kinetics SCMOS camera. We also host episodes that focus more on physical science applications, such as near-infrared, X-ray imaging and spectroscopy, partnering with Teledyne Prints and Instruments. Follow them on social media to see when the next episode is released. See you next time and stay safe.